Father, we turn to you today and we're thankful that um, we can come to your word and we can find help and guidance and direction from it. I pray that as we look at this particular passage of scripture today that uh, it will be a help to us as we um, are in a life of faith, a journey of faith, and circumstances hit us from all different directions and they sometimes have an impact on our steadfastness and our confidence in your promises. I pray that this reminder from the life of Abraham to us would be a help even in the days in which we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice as we read this text, and we're going to read it in portions as we work our way through it this morning, but there are some difficult issues that are raised in the text. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, I'm going to deal with these just right off the top. I won't have time to explain them. In fact, they're not even the point of the message, but they do give us something of the context of the world in which Abraham lived. And so I've just called them difficult observations. Context matters. We understand that context matters, not just of the words that we speak and where we take them from, but also the context of the world in which we live in. And we have this great reminder that we are not to let the world squeeze us into its mold. This doesn't only mean that we don't think like the world, but it also means that the world does not determine the way that we think. And there are a few things in this passage that I want to point out to you. As I said, I won't deal with them, but they are matters of relevance and significance. Just for the matter-of-fact way that they are mentioned in the scripture and in this particular text. And I think in part they function to draw our attention to the world or the environment in which Abraham lived. They reveal to us the sinful actions of sinful human hearts. And we're looking at the life of a man who lived somewhere around uh, uh, the second millennium B.C., so 2,000 years, 2,000 B.C. And here we are, uh, 2,000 years into A.D., so we're 4,000 years separate. But the things that are mentioned in this text are just as much a part of our world as they were a part of Abraham's world. Nothing has changed. And I fear, though, that putting them before you as we start, they'll rattle around in your head and you won't hear anything else I say because you'll be trying to figure them out on yourselves. I, I don't want you to do that. I want you to just hear them, uh, stick them in your head, maybe jot them down, and then later on today, come back to them. But, for instance, we'll come through this text and you'll find um, people speaking deceitfully with each other. We'll talk about a man who married his half-sister. We'll look about an instance of a man who, rather than loving his wife and caring for her, exposed her to significant danger. There's certainly an instance in this story where powerful men use their position and their influence to humiliate and take advantage of women. We have in this text a reference to male and female slaves. These are issues that didn't just happen 4,000 years ago. These are issues that affect the world in which we live today. And I think, why are these things so much a part of the culture in which we live? I think the, the most straightforward answer is simply that humanity is infected with a virus. And we call that virus sin. And there's only one cure for that particular virus. There's only one thing that can rid men and women of the sinfulness in our hearts. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I ask myself again, so why are these things so prevalent in our culture? Not only in Abraham's day, 
but in the day in which we live now. And part of it is because humanity has turned their back on the uniqueness of man and woman, who are both made in the image of God. And we, when we look at people as less than human, when we look at people as the product of evolutionary development, we lose sight of the inherent dignity that God has put upon a man and a woman. And we begin to treat them less than human. We begin to treat them as animals or as chattel. A third reason why these things are so prevalent in our culture today, particularly the tensions that we find between male and female, is because we have lost sight of the fact that men and women are equally made in the image and character of God. Male and female, he made them in his image and in his likeness he made them. Strength, intellect, wealth do not negate equality. In fact, the strong and the intellectually gifted and the wealthy, I believe, have a greater responsibility to defend and uphold all human beings as made in the image of God. And so Abraham's world is our world. And as Paul says in Romans, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I say that because this is a world in which we are called to walk in by faith. And we know that Jesus prayed when he was just on his last few days here on earth. He prayed to his father that he wouldn't take his disciples out of the world, but that he would keep them from the evil one. He would keep them from being overrun or overpowered from the evil one. And the reality is, is yes, we haven't been taken out of the world, but we've been called out of darkness to live in the wonderful light of God. And we are to engage in good deeds and begin to live after the likeness of our Father and be shaped in the likeness and the image of His Son. And we are to be transformed from the inside out by the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So those things set aside, I want to just turn to the text now. If you have your Bibles open, I'm going to use references to, to going to Egypt as the way to divide the text. And the first uh, heading of our uh, look at this particular passage this morning is simply departing for Egypt. And we find in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to, eat, to sojourn there in Egypt, for the famine was severe in the land. And the first thing I put in my notes is I didn't see that coming. There was a famine in the land. That in itself is probably not all that surprising, I guess, because the land of Canaan is more susceptible to such weather events and is dependent on the regularity of the various rains that would come throughout the year. But in and of itself, it's a simple statement. There was a famine in the land, but it's full of foreboding. After all, this was the land of promise. This was the land to which God had called Abraham out of uh, um, out of Nahor into the land of Canaan. And the surprise is not that there's a famine, but the surprise is Abraham's response to the famine. Abraham was about to find himself overwhelmed by the circumstance of the famine and turn his back on the land that God had directed him to. Abraham's faith was being put to the test. And we see as we read on, that Abraham faltered. 
It says, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine in the land was severe. If you've been following with us, we have a map that we've been using to just kind of track Abraham's progress. And we started out in the bottom right-hand corner of the map, uh, down in the Ur of Chaldees, which is the tip of the Persian Gulf. And we followed the Fertile Crescent up to the very top of it to Haran. And that was where Haran moved with his family and his dad. When his dad passed away, God called Abraham and brought him out of Haran. And we said last week that then he traversed the whole length of the land that God had promised him. And he worked himself from Haran all the way down to the bottom of the land of Canaan. And that's where he settled. And so now we see him, though, at the bottom of the land of Canaan, making his way into the land of Egypt, just to the bottom left of the map that's on your screen. As I read this, a whole bunch of questions flooded into my mind. Uh, Abraham, didn't God promise to protect you and provide for you? Abraham, didn't God say that he was giving you the land of Canaan? Isn't that a good land? Abraham, how are you making this decision? Did God tell you to go down to Egypt? Not that there's anything wrong with Egypt, but Abraham had been moving at the word of God. He'd been calling out to God. He'd been worshiping God. And I wonder, Abraham, did this come to you as you were calling out to God? You see, it seems to me that there's, there's no indication that Abraham was praying to God or that God had directed him to go from Canaan down to Egypt. It seems like this departure was, was strained from his norm of walking with God. If he had waited for God to speak, would he have gone down to Egypt? It appears to me, at least on the surface, that Abraham is taking things into his own hands. And I wonder, Abraham, did you not pray about this circumstance? You see, going down to Egypt was a natural choice but not necessarily a wise one. For immediately leaving the land of Canaan and going to Egypt, Abraham put the whole promises of God into jeopardy. For not only was Abraham willing to give up, at least temporarily, his claim to the land that God had promised him, but he also placed at risk his promised descendants who would occupy that land. You notice in verse 10, the land is mentioned twice. I think that's for emphasis. I, I think that's for reminder. Because Abraham had received the land, and he has been living in the land, and now all of a sudden, because of circumstances, he's about to leave that land that God had given him. And on the one level, we might be asking ourselves, well, is there a flaw then in the promise of God? Are God's promises so fragile that they're susceptible to shifting weather patterns? And yet, isn't this the way of God's promises? They come to us, and when they come to us, they come with great assurance. And then, bam! It's like God pulls the rug out from under us. The, the, the assurance just goes, and we're left there on the shaky ground of this promise. You might recall in the first chapter of Mark, that um, Jesus is about to go into his ministry, and, and there's this wonderful scene where he's baptized. And when he's baptized, he comes out of the water, and, and, and God speaks, and he says, This is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. And I wonder when Jesus heard those words, if he must have just stood up a little bit um, uh, taller and, and just thought, wow, I am God's son and he's pleased in me. And then in Mark's very um, unique fashion, he uses the word immediately numerous times in the gospel. The very next verse, he says, immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted. And we think, whoa, we just started with this amazing affirmation of God on him. And things are going to be wonderful. And then, bam, the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted. Certainly, there will be times when the promises of God look doubtful. But that shouldn't cause us to abandon them. And certainly there will be times when, with the promises of God, there are more question marks than there are exclamation points. But we, know, we should not easily waver in the promises of God. You see, as we're going to see, Egypt was not a safe place. And, and any actions that indicate the abandonment of God's promises on our part, I think expose us to danger even today. We're, we're so easily deceived by outward circumstances. I was thinking about this in the life of Joshua. Uh, uh, and you can read about this in Joshua chapter 9 as they're about to conquer the land of uh, Canaan. And there's a number of years later, hundreds of years later. And after a significant victory of the people of um, Israel over Ai, they were facing increasing hostility from all the cities in Canaan as news about the power of their God and their great conquest was beginning to spread around the land. And they were all ganging up and getting ready to fight. But one group of people took an entirely different tact with Joshua and the Israelites. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they acted deceptively. They made up a story. They, they presented physical evidence that was a lie bread that was, they had made stale and sandals that they tore up and hacked up so it looked like they had been walking for a long, long time. They used flattery about the people of God or the people of Israel to flatter them and say how, how wonderful they were. And so convincing were they that the text notes, and this is, this is one of the, this is a fascinating commentary on the men of Israel. It said the men of Israel did not seek the Lord's counsel. It wasn't that they were sloppy. They were simply presumptive. They didn't pray. And I, I asked myself, do we need to ask God for his wisdom and direction, even if we don't have doubts about what it is that we want to do? Is it not a very dangerous thing to say in our hearts, I've got this one. I understand all the circumstances. You see, it seems to me that Abraham just took things into his own hands. He, he thought of everything except God. We might give him the benefit of the doubt and, and say, well, he, he doubted God. But his natural logic, natural as it was, was fatally flawed. For his natural logic was driven, it seems, more by his fears than by faith in a living God. And so... The story tells us that a famine hit the land. And what did, what did Abraham do? He took off down to Egypt. Fascinating, when we come to verse 11, we get the next sort of geographical marker in the text. 
And it says, when he was about to enter Egypt. So he's made his way, and he's just kind of sitting outside the border of Egypt. Maybe at the Peach Peace Arch border crossing. And he hasn't crossed into the States yet. But they're sitting in the car saying, now what are we going to say to the border guards? And so he says, this is what the text says. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. It's a fascinating interaction that Abraham has, just this, this snapshot into his heart. And you might say, well, how do you know what Abraham was um, how do you know Abraham went without asking God? Well, I can't be sure of that, but his actions indicate and his decisions um, seem to suggest that he was making decisions without the promises of God in mind, the promise to protect him, the promise to grant him descendants. It's as though the famine had exposed his heart. Genesis 12:11 contained the first written or spoken words of Abraham, at least recorded. He spoke a lot of words. After all, he lived 75 years. But these are the first spoken words that the Bible records of Abraham. And he starts out really good. He turns to his wife and he says, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. That wasn't flattery. It was true. Her form and her eyes, um, evidence of uh, in the Near Eastern culture of beauty, she was a beautiful woman, but he should have stopped there. But he was only getting started. He follows that up with, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but let you live. Please say you are my sister. So it, Now listen to this. So it will go well with me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. But then what would happen to the promise? Sarah would be taken by another man. And what would happen to the promise of a seed through Abraham and Sarah? By the way, if you think this is weird, it's not. This would not have been the only person in the Old Testament to be conveniently disposed of in order to allow a king to add to his harem. Remember David and Bathsheba and Uriah. You see, it seems like his words are betraying that he's following God. His, his words and now his actions betray a confidence in the promise of God. And it's kind of like he's winging it now. He's got a problem. He's got a really beautiful wife. But because of her beauty, he knows she's in danger. Abraham knew full well the world in which he lived. He knew how men thought. He knew the things they could do, not just to him, but also to his wife. And I think to myself, is our world any safer for women? Physical beauty may open doors, but are all of them safe? It's a sad commentary on the hearts and the sinful hearts of men, whether in our minds or in our deeds, that we think of women as commodities. And I think, do these few lines of the Bible make you mad? Or do they convict you? And what of Abraham? This is self-preservation at its worst or best, depending on your action. At this moment, Abraham loved his safety and security more than he loved God. Listen to his self-talk. This is what I imagine in his head. 
as he's working this out, if, if things turn out as I anticipate, worst case scenario, Sarah could become another man's wife, but at least I will be alive. These are the kinds of things a woman never forgets. And how far off from the biblical mandate of men to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How far off from the biblical mandate of promoting the purity and the holiness of one's wife. How far off from the biblical mandate to protect one's wife. How off, far off from trusting in the providence and the protection and the promises of God. I don't think I'm being hard on Abraham. I think I'm just being realistic with how the text presents him. Now, it could be that Abraham was actually taking actions he thought would help God out. In other words, maybe the promise of God wasn't enough. He, he couldn't really trust in it fully. And so he says, I, I need to apply my ingenuity to the situation. God seems to be silent. There's no way that his promise is going to work down here in Egypt. So i got to figure this out. And, and one has said that as a brother, Abraham would have been better able to control the situation should another man approach him about marrying Sarai. He would be able to install them. He would be able to ask an exorbitant bride price. If that was true, the problem in that thinking was he didn't take Pharaoh into account. Because Pharaoh could do as he pleased. What could Abraham have done differently? Well, he could have said to Sarai, remember, they're about to enter Egypt. He could have said to Sarai, Sarai, we're in a really dangerous situation. We know what sinful men are like, and we know what the world is like, a world that doesn't worship God. Yet God has promised to protect us. God has promised he would give us a seed. So let's trust God as we go down into Egypt. In other words, he could have taken the promises of God and applied them to himself. God has told me he will protect me. God has told me he will give me a land. So I'm going into the land of Egypt, and I'm going to trust God no matter what. I think what troubled me a lot as I read this text is the reminder of how quickly we compromise when we walk outside of the will or the promises of God. I say, what were you thinking, Abraham? You've jeopardized, you've jeopardized the seed promise. Sarah, another man's wife? You've turned away from the protection promise. You, you're more concerned with Egyptian might than the power and the promise of God. So we move to the next geographical marker in verse 14. When Abraham entered Egypt. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. What Abraham feared happened. Sure enough, just as we are told that the famine was very severe, we are reminded that Sarai was very beautiful. She would have to be to attract the attention of Pharaoh's servants, who were always on a lookout for another beautiful woman to add to the Pharaoh's harem. 
The actions of Pharaoh towards Sarai are inexcusable by any stretch of the imagination. She was taken to Pharaoh's house. Read kidnapped. Read swept off the street. Read added to his harem. But life for Abraham was strangely good. He was right on this count. If, if you lie for me, it will go well for me. And so we read he acquired flocks and herds and male and female donkeys and male and female slaves and camels. I wrote down, hmm, a penny for your thoughts, Sarah? What happened to Abraham clinging to the protection clause of God in chapter 12, verse 3? See, such memory lapses and fears are not only the way of 75-year-old men. Jesus clearly knew the impact of fear on the life of his followers. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Then we find out a little bit about Abraham while he was in Egypt. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? How we need God to intervene in our lives. This is an amazing sentence there. But God afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. At the same time, and it seems almost coincidentally, when Sarai was taken into the harem, Pharaoh's house and officials were inflicted with a severe disease. Most likely it was a skin disease. It's the same word actually that's used of the plagues that we read about in Exodus. But it's also a word that is used to describe leprosy. We don't know exactly, but whatever it was, it's called a severe plague. And I think, wow, Abraham, your actions brought this on the house of Pharaoh. I think, wow, Sarai, you're the only one in the harem that's not covered with this severe disease. And I think, wow, God, you are so powerful that you are able to send a severe disease on a very specific group of people at a very specific time for a very specific reason. I think the truth is that only God's power can guarantee God's plan. And it's like God is sending a message to Pharaoh, and I love this message. It's mess with Abraham and you will mess with me. God is true to his word, and I wish I had more confidence with this. I wish the people at God had more confidence with this. I am a child of God. You, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a child you are of God. You are a son or a daughter of God, the living God. And we have a promise of his protection. We have a promise of his presence. Can anything snatch me out of the hand of God? 
If God is for me, who can be against me? I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will have the power to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am invincible. I am a child of God. Why do we fear circumstances? Why do we fear people? God is able to protect us. I can't imagine what went through Abraham's mind then when he got this summons from Pharaoh. I wonder if Abraham, as he walked into his court, was almost his jaw dropped. As he looked at Pharaoh and he looked at all the officials and they had this severe disease all over their bodies. He saw them suffering, and he saw them with this severe plague. And, and, and did that distress Abraham? As he's standing there looking around, is he kind of, whoa. And then, the rebuke of God through the mouth of Pharaoh. What have you done to me? Was the tone of Pharaoh anger? Was it humiliation? Was it fear? Was it frustration? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? You lied to me. Why? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her as my wife? On one account, I'm innocent. Now here's your wife. Take her and get out of my sight. This is a rebuke from a pagan king to Abraham, the child of God. You know, sometimes people ask me, how does God speak? Or does God still speak? I don't hear his voice. His word seems irrelevant to me. We found that God appeared to Abraham, that God spoke to Abraham. So we know that God communed to Abraham. And here we have another way I which, think in which God was speaking to Abraham. Here is God speaking to Abraham through a pagan king. God can speak to you through your husband, through your wife, through your boss. Even if they aren't Christians, God can use them to communicate things that you won't listen to any other way. What really caught me was Pharaoh's last word to Abraham, and it must have stung. Go. I think he meant go back to where you came from. And do you recall the last time Abraham heard that command? In verse 1 of chapter 12, God's lips. Go, Abraham, from Haran into the land of Canaan. Here is a corrective course. So Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt intact. And God is true to his word. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, Abraham. So verse 1 of chapter 13, we have another geographical reference so Abraham went up from Egypt and he had his wife and all that he had had and Lot was with him into the Negev now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made the altar at first and there Abraham called on the name of the Lord Those are amazing verses. I suspect that as Abraham left Egypt, he left with his tail between his legs, so to speak. 
I think the wheels of his head and his heart were, were spinning wildly. God's intervention had humbled him. He had been rebuked by a pagan king for not trusting God and for trying to work out his own plan. And yet somehow he must have sensed that God's favor and deliverance gave him hope. God can keep his word. God does keep his word. And so Abraham heads back to Canaan, not only intact, but considerably richer than when he had entered. Now, it would be very, very unwise to conclude God blesses disobedience. He doesn't. But it would be very, very wise to conclude God is rich in mercy and overflowing with loving kindness and committed to keeping his word towards us in spite of our faithlessness. And I read verse 4. Think about it again. It's one of the most significant notes in this song of mercy. Abraham went in stages from Negev to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the tight where he had built, to the place where he had built the altar. And Abraham worshipped the Lord there. Do you see what the text is saying? It's as if Abraham is purposely going back to where he went off course. It's as if geography is an expression of his repentance. I resonate with this picture because for me, it's, it's another way of teaching us what repentance looks like. Abraham had been stung. There's no presumption. And it's like he's testing the water little by little as he works his way back to where he left. Till finally he is home. And what does he do when he gets back home? He worships the Lord. I love this picture. I've experienced it myself, both from God and from my wife. Of, of disappointing them so much. And then slowly working myself back to the point of departure. And finding grace and mercy and forgiveness. George Whitfield always remembered the place of his new birth. He said, I know the place. It may be superstitious, perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help but running to the place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me new birth. I love that picture. Every time he goes back to Oxford, he says, I got to go back to the place where I first heard the voice of God calling me. Another Puritan writer Walter Pingle speaks of having committed his newborn son to God. <laughs> Notice this. At the plum tree on the north side of the garden door. Geography can have spiritual impact. Abraham went back to the point of departure. I want to apply this now in a very specific way. I've been thinking about this in my own life for some time as I've been getting ready for this message. But I want you to think about it in a very peculiar but specific way. Genesis said, now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. 
Now, with all that we've talked about regarding Abraham and his response to the famine, a significant life-impacting reality, consider this. Now, there was a virus in the land. So Paul went down to his house to sojourn there. For the virus was severe in the land. You see, the circumstances of the famine proved to be a significant test for the faith of Abraham. When the famine hit, he stumbled. He stumbled over the promises of God. And so what I'm asking us to consider, what I'm asking you to consider, is what has your response been to this virus? I suspect that it's been one of the most significant tests that most of us have faced in our lifetime. Have you taken matters into your own hands? Have you simply reacted out of fear, or are you walking in faith? Are there any promises of God that you've cast aside and doubted in these last four and a half months? Is your fear of the virus stronger than your faith in God? Have you even asked God, God, how should I respond with my job, with my family, with my kids? Should I go back to school? Should I not go back to school? See, when famine struck, Abraham struggled with applying the promises of God into his circumstances. He relied on his own ingenuity to deal with the troubles. Abraham made assumptions about the situation which were clearly not true. He made decisions on, based on those assumptions, not on the truths about God. Loved ones, God will not abandon you. A virus cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, or any other child of God, for that matter, from God. But a virus can cause a heart to stumble badly. I simply ask, what has the virus exposed in your heart? What has been your natural logic? What is the Egypt that you find yourself going to because of this virus? What have those excursions exposed about the deep loyalties of your heart? How has your prayer life been since the virus struck? How has your confidence been in the sovereign reign and rule of God over these past four months? What have you feared? Has that fear led you into sin? How are your decisions impacting those around you? What promises maybe have you lost sight of? John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress has a great section in it. In this particular section, Christian and hopeful turn aside into Bypath Meadow, where they are found and captured by giant despair, who takes them into Doubting Castle. He throws them into the dungeon there without food or water or light, and he urges the pilgrims to do away with themselves because their fate is sealed, he says. Hopeful argues Christian out of taking that option. But all seems really bleak. And once the giant takes them to the courtyard and he shows them the remains of previous specimens that he had torn apart and he tells them that in 10 days he's going to do the same to them. So on Saturday night about midnight, Hopeful and Christian begin to pray and pray on almost till dawn. And suddenly Christian exclaims, what a fool I am. 
That's to lie in this stinking dungeon when I may as well walk in liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And it worked on the dungeon door. It worked on the outward doors of the castle. And though the lock worked hard, it even opened the iron gate to the whole complex. And off they went back to the king's highway. Abraham had a key called promise. But he didn't use it. You and I have a key called promise. Will we use it? Maybe, just maybe, some of us need to find our way back to God. Maybe some of us need to come back to a place where we called out to God. To pre-COVID days, if I can say it that crudely, where our confidence in God was strong. Does faith make a difference in a crisis? Absolutely. May God help us walk in faith, not in fear. God has promised to walk with you, to never leave you or forsake you, and to protect you. Please, by, by no means am I saying, well, let's throw caution to the wind. What I am saying is this, do not throw faith to the wind. Use the key called promise to deliver you from the virus. Let's pray. Father, I acknowledge that there is a virus in the land, and it's very severe. I often find myself unsure of how to respond to this virus that has changed our world and changed my world too. I don't know what to do. I sometimes feel powerless in the face of it. However, my eyes are upon you. And I trust you. Please make my path straight. Strengthen my faith, I plead. In Jesus' name, amen.